0: Good morning. So, like Brian said, we're going to finish our series in Habakkuk today. It's only a three-chapter book, but I'm so glad that we've spent so much time on it. If you have a paper Bible with you this morning, uh, grab it. We're going to try something. I remember uh, being a kid in youth group and being told that if you took your Bible and you flipped to about the middle, you'd be in Psalms, and if you went from there and flipped a little past halfway to the back you'd be in the New Testament, Matthew. And that's handy. It's a good tip. But it's also a little emblematic, I think, of how we sometimes treat the Bible. Habakkuk is in the flip-through books, kind of like flyover states, right? (laughs) The parts we have to skip to get to the good bit. But that's not true, is it? It's not true about Habakkuk, and it's not true about Missouri. (laughs) Habakkuk asks us, what do we do when it seems like God isn't there? A question that I expect every single one of us in this room has asked. And I hope our recent look at two of the minor prophets, Jonah and Habakkuk, have challenged you to go back and consider this part of scripture again, that childhood stories about fish have more to say than we thought, and that prophets with funny names have very relevant questions for us today. So let's flip our Bibles to Habakkuk 3, but let's make it a thoughtful flipping and remind ourselves of the story so far. So God creates the world and fills it with life. And he creates Humans, as his image, his representatives on earth with a mandate to care for creation and spread God's blessing. But tragically, we rebel. We let go of God's definition of what is right and we take hold of our own. And our definition is selfish. We start to believe that we cannot flourish unless others fall. And trust is broken. But God is committed to humanity. Committed to ruling creation with humanity. And so he makes a promise. The promise that working with and through our brokenness, he will bring reconciliation. And the plan starts very, very small. He promises an elderly, childless couple abraham and sarah that somehow their descendants will become a great nation and through this nation god's blessing will reach all nations and through fits and starts their family does grow and eventually they find themselves numerous but captives slaves in egypt God raises up Moses and leads them out of slavery, and the people encounter God at Mount Sinai. They see smoke and fire from the mountain and hear God's voice in the fire. They enter a covenant with God that they will be his special possession among the nations, and he will lead them to a place where they can be a nation. And they enter that place, but humanity hasn't changed We want to be kings, not stewards. And through cycles of rebellion and revival, the nation decays. It fractures in civil war, and the northern part is conquered by the Assyrian Empire, leaving only the southern kingdom, Judah, and its capital, Jerusalem. Eventually, Assyria is absorbed by the Babylonian Empire. And here we encounter Habakkuk, living in Judah, with corrupt kings and the ever-growing threat of the Babylonians on their borders. In chapter 1, Habakkuk looks around and sees that things are not as they should be. Judah is not holding up its end of the covenant agreement at Mount Sinai. There is violence and corruption, and he cries out to God, Why do you allow this? And God answers, And it must have been about the last thing Habakkuk expected to hear. God has raised the fearsome Babylonian empire for the purpose of bringing judgment and discipline on Judah. They will sweep in and conquer the land. And Habakkuk protests, how does this help anything? They are more violent and corrupt than we are. But God is patient with Habakkuk. He explains that the Babylonians will face their own judgment. All of our selfish definitions of right and wrong will come to an end. And the remnant of Abraham's family will be preserved. And so Habakkuk reflects on all of these things in chapter 3. And he writes a song. Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet According to Sheganoth. Well, we didn't get very far before we got to something interesting. What is Sheganoth? It's a Hebrew word. So a good follow-up question would be, why is there still a Hebrew word in my English Bible? Well, it's because no one's quite sure what it means. There are theories. If you look at other translations, you'll see things like set to wild and enthusiastic music or for ignorances Some translations leave it out and put in a footnote, but most just leave it untranslated. Scholars think it's probably some kind of technical musical term, something about tempo or pace, and there's a similar word used in Psalm 7, but really, we just don't know what it means. Does that bother you? You know, I've actually grown to kind of like it. It's humbling. It's a reminder that these are real ancient documents from an ancient people, That we should not be too quick to claim mastery over them. That we should listen to them at least as much as we talk about them. Let's continue. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. How does Habakkuk begin his song? Recall that the content of this book has been about things that are happening. Sin in Israel and things that will happen. The judgment on that sin. But Habakkuk begins singing when he looks back. He remembers what the traditions of his people have passed down to him about what God has done. Habakkuk wants those things to happen again. And when he says he's heard the report... What do you think he's talking about specifically? I mean, it could be many things, but in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses addresses the children of the people who were at Mount Sinai, who saw these things with their own eyes. And so is recorded one of the first times that this report was given. And it was preserved all the way to Habakkuk, who would have known it from childhood and all the way to us. We can hear it right now. Deuteronomy 4. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you, since the days that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war? By a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Something incredible happened to Habakkuk's people. Something without precedent. Something that could not be explained except the author of this world stepped in and made himself known. Something that changed them forever. This is what Habakkuk remembers. Let's keep this in mind as we continue his song. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are place names, and both are to the southeast of Judah, which is the direction of Mount Sinai, where the people heard God's voice and saw his great fire. It's the direction from which the people approached their promised land. Habakkuk is connecting us back to the story of their deliverance from slavery. God is traveling that road of salvation again. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. I love this. I mean, they could have just said God's very powerful, right? But it's poetry. God's approach is compared to the sun. What happens when the sun comes up? It fills the sky. It covers the land in light, and the earth reacts. Flowers bloom, ice melts, creatures scurry around. It cannot be ignored. And get this, there he veiled his power. The claim here being that if God's power shines as bright as the sun, we're only seeing the bit that shines through his fingers. As bright and awesome as the sun, and that's just a fraction of it. Before him went pestilence. And plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tints of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Everything answers to God. Illness is part of his baggage train. He commands it. He surveys the earth like he owns it, because he does. He's more everlasting than the everlasting mountains. Cushion and Midian are neighboring people groups, and they quake as he goes past. They are in awe of him. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? we reminded here of deliverance from Egypt by the parting of the sea. And the answer is no, this isn't all just for show. God has a purpose in his action, the deliverance of his people. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. We see God here depicted as a mighty warrior. And this warrior God image is not uncommon in the Bible, but it might make us a bit uneasy. Jesus talks about loving your enemy and turning the other cheek and Here we see God piercing and crushing, and what are we to make of that? This book tells us who God is, and it also told the ancient Judeans who God is. You see, in the ancient world, gods were often celebrated for their martial prowess, and stories about them involve winning great conflicts. The Babylonians, the people coming to invade Judah, they have their own creation account. It's called the Enuma Elish. And in that account, the storm god Marduk defeats the sea serpent Tiamat and rips her apart to create the earth and the sky. And most ancient god accounts are like that. The gods are locked in some sort of struggle, and one of them wins out and is declared supreme. But what's different in the Hebrew Bible? In Genesis, there's nothing to defeat, right? Right? God simply speaks, and it is so, because he is like no other. There's nothing to oppose him. And in this depiction of God as a warrior, we see there's no competition. The mountains, the waters, the sun, and the moon, things that people around Judah would have worshipped, they're in awe of him. Why is God going to war? Verse 13, for the salvation of his people. And look at this next verse, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Does that sound familiar? To me, it sounds like Genesis 3, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God fights against spiritual evil for the salvation of his people. And so we see here that the God of Abraham is not like neighboring gods. He doesn't have to win his place in battle. He is like no other. Now, if you'll permit me a bit of an aside here. People have used these depictions of God as a warrior to support their belief that they know who the wicked are. And if they were just destroyed or marginalized, the world would be a better place. But remember, church, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against evil. We live on an occupied earth And the kingdom of heaven has already launched a liberation campaign and there were no preparatory bombardments, there were no tanks. Who does God send as the vanguard of his liberation? The poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, those who seek righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted and they're armed only with the word of God and defended with truth, righteousness, and faith. Let's continue as Habakkuk reacts to what God has revealed to him about the Babylonian invasion. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is deeply affecting. The life he knows is ending. His city will be surrounded and conquered and the people led away into captivity. God has revealed to him that the Babylonians will eventually come to ruin, but he has to wait for it. All these things will happen first. There's no skipping past these trials. And so Habakkuk names his fears. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Habakkuk lived in a farming society, and he's describing the end of that world. What would our version be today? Though the power goes out and the shelves be empty, the roads crumble, the tap run dry, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places." I love this image of a deer treading on high places. Have you ever seen Planet Earth? It's one of those David Attenborough narrated nature documentaries and there's a sequence where Ibex run across what looks like a vertical rock wall. And it's amazing that they can navigate such a dangerous place so gracefully. And that's the picture. Habakkuk sees great hardship, a time of not enough to go around, and yet he rejoices in the Lord. He is going to be as sure-footed and confident as he navigates this time of trial as a deer on a mountainside. And if I'm honest, this image also describes my reaction to this chapter. I look at the deer running on the cliff and Habakkuk, rejoicing in the face of hardship, and I have the same question. How does he do that? Nothing material has changed for Habakkuk. This time of great turmoil, it's still coming, and and he rejoices. All of that horrible stuff, the no food, it still seems pretty bad. How can he rejoice? Maybe he can make peace with it, stiff upper lip, Maybe he can accept it, but rejoice. Is it escapism? Is it head in the sandism? If you react like I do, let me suggest that you and I misunderstand two things. We misunderstand what God promises and why we can trust what He does promise. So, what does God promise? Let's get there by first considering Jesus and his famous Sermon on the Mound where he tells us not to worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. A few chapters later, Jesus is sending his disciples out, and he tells them, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And later in the same book, the disciples are marveling at the size of the temple. And Jesus tells them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he goes on to tell them how Jerusalem will be sacked again. They will be put to death and there will be a time of difficulty as there has never been and never will be again. Jesus is telling his disciples to expect trials. But don't worry. Now, I am an anxious person. I struggle with worry. Like, what if It's the scariest question, right? So maybe you're not like that, and maybe you react differently. But when someone tells me not to worry, and also has a list of things for me to worry about, <laughs> I don't really know what to do with that. It, the bird thing, it doesn't feel like it helps right now. But, but I realized that when someone tells me not to worry, what I really want to hear is that there's nothing to worry about. And that's not what Jesus has for us. He says there will be trials, but don't worry. Many of you, I'm sure, are aware of the prosperity gospel. I kind of hesitate to call it a gospel, but that's what it's called. That's how people know it. It's the idea that Jesus is a path to material wealth. Now, I I personally have not been taken in by the prosperity gospel. But maybe I have fallen for a prosperity gospel. I'll call it the comfort gospel. The idea that God will give me an easy life. That it's not just don't worry, but there's nothing to worry about. And for me, it started out that if I'm good, if I obey... I'll get an easy life. And then I learned about grace, and it became, if I have enough faith, if I trust enough, I'll have an easy life. We want those things to go together, right? We want to think that God can relieve our suffering, and so he will, that God can steer us around hardships, and so he will, if we're good, or have enough faith, or pray the right prayer. But consider, how did that work out for Jesus? He lived the only truly and completely righteous life. And he was murdered in his early 30s. How did that work out for Paul? Chased out of town, imprisoned, beaten, shipwrecked? How about the other disciples? If you're following Jesus to get an easy life, I'm sorry, that's not the promise. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. God is a healer. He is a comforter. And he does bring healing and he does bring comfort. He tells us to ask for those things. He knows each of us, as his children, and he knows what we need and what we can bear. Don't stop asking our Father for deliverance from our physical and emotional needs. But he does not promise freedom from those things. He promises to love us. Paul in Romans eight. Romans eight. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. He is saying very thoroughly nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a famous passage. And it's very reassuring that nothing can stop God from saving us. But that's not all that it says. That Those things can't separate you from the love of God, means that having those things in your life, having a hard life, does not mean God doesn't love you. I mean, we're kind of tempted to do that, right? To use how it's going with us as a barometer for how God feels about us, or how much he loves us. But that's, that's just not what it says. There will be trials, and those trials do not mean God is absent. They don't mean God doesn't care. Your material situation gives you no information about what God thinks about you or who he is because you were not promised a life free of troubles. In fact, we're told that following Jesus comes with troubles. Troubles that Paul says we will look back at from our place with Jesus and see them as light and momentary. And that somehow those troubles are preparing us for that day with him. I don't know about you, but a lot of troubles don't seem light and momentary now. But standing next to Jesus, they will. That is the promise. Habakkuk could rejoice because he did not believe that difficulty in his life meant God didn't care about him. He understood the promise that would bring him closer to God. And he would one day look back and say, worth it. Now that's a huge promise, right? That whatever has us laying awake at night, whatever has us anxious, depressed, weeping, that we will look back and regard those things as light and momentary. How can we trust such an enormous promise? Recall how Habakkuk began to sing when he looked back when he remembered what God had done. Why did God do that? Why did he bring the people out of slavery? There's an answer just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you Because it's not contingent on who we are. It's about who God is. Habakkuk was able to look back and see the miracle at Mount Sinai delivery from slavery, freedom from oppression, and a future as a new nation. We are able to look back and see the miracle of the empty tomb delivery from sin, freedom from death, and a future as a new creation. We have 10,000 times more reason to rejoice in the face of trial than Habakkuk because we can see Jesus. Psychologists classify our fears into a number of core fears. There's several models. Sometimes there's five core fears. Sometimes there's three. Things like abandonment and failure. But the fear that is on every core fear list is death. The cross and the empty tomb silence death. (coughs) Jesus is king. He proved it by walking out of the tomb. If death bows to Jesus, then so do all other fears. So do all other trials. But what if, my anxiety says. Jesus is Lord of if, too. So why isn't it that simple? I, I see Jesus and what he's done, and poof, I'm rejoicing in God, even if my comfort is crumbling. I think it's because of how trust works. You can't really trust two things at once. You see, we're so very tempted to make it on our own. We want to be kings, remember? Remember? That's what happened at the very beginning of the story. We we want to be enough. We want to be independent. We want to be self-sustaining. To trust in our own ability. To trust something outside of us completely is to give up complete control. Have you ever heard of the ABSF, the American Blind Skiing Foundation? Yeah, it is exactly what it sounds like, blind people skiing. And the way it works is the blind skier has a guide, a person who skis right along with them and calls out, left, right, slow down, and so on. Now think about the trust dynamic in this relationship. How much does the skier rely on the guide? Entirely. How much are they able to do for themselves what the guide can do? Not a bit. Now imagine you're a sighted person and you want to know what this is like. So you close your eyes and have someone guide you down a ski slope. Would you peek? (laughs) You would peek. Because you can see. You think you can see, at least. What if the guide tells you to go right and you peek and you see what looks like a drop off? Like a cliff. Which way do you go? Who knows the mountain? You or the guide who does this every day? The guide. You know that intellectually, but in the moment, it sure looks like a cliff. Which way do you go? Who do you, who do you trust? Unless you are empty of the quality needed to ski down that hill, you will never fully, completely, entirely trust that guide. And as long as we think we have any ability to fulfill the promise, any ability to do for ourselves what only God can do, we won't trust him, not entirely. Especially not when it seems like maybe he sent us the wrong way. We'll peek. We'll second guess. We won't fully embrace one trust unless we let go of another. Now let me be clear. We're talking about rejoicing and hardship. And someone here might hear me and think, oh, if I don't trust God as much as that blind skier trusts that guide, I'm doing it wrong. But our salvation does not work like that. It is not a question of degrees or how much. If you drive across a bridge, you are trusting it to hold you up. You can trust it completely and drive right across Or you can barely trust it and white-knuckle and hyperventilate and what-if your way across. Either way you trusted it and it held you up. So Habakkuk rejoices when the calamity comes. And how does he do it? Because he understands that the calamity does not get in the way of the promise. The promise God made that he's proven to be faithful to his promises. A God who guarantees his promise by his power and not by ours. Who can authoritatively tell us hard times are coming and do not worry. Habakkuk remembers and he trusts. Jesus is the ultimate mountain guide because he's been down the mountain and he made the mountain. And he knows it perfectly. And by his perfect death, perfect life and death, he earned the right to guide us. It's difficult to let go of our trust in ourselves, to empty ourselves of our need to be kings and trust the Father. But right now, we're gonna take one step in that direction and remember,